Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. This is Robert Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And it is Monday, the day of each week that we read back messages from the Stuff to Blow Your Mind email address, which is contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. If you have never gotten in touch before, why not give it a shot? We always welcome feedback to recent episodes. Uh, if you have something interesting you'd like to add to a topic we've talked about, send it on in. Of course, if you have corrections, those are welcome too. Uh, if you would like to suggest a topic for the future, or if you just want to say hi, tell us who you are, tell us, uh, you know, what, what, what you like about the show, how you listen, anything like that, send it on in contact at stuff to blow your mind.com. Uh, let's see, Rob, we got, uh, so th this week is going to be very weird house cinema heavy. We got a lot of weird house messages to get through. Um, a lot of great feedback on on things such as Gorgo and other recent uh, features on the show. Uh, but to kick things off, we got a couple of messages in response to our series on hermit crabs. I think I'm going to do this one from longtime correspondent Jim in New Jersey. All right, let's have it. So this is in response to our discussion of a phenomenon known as vacancy chains, which are observed in hermit crabs as they compete for shells, but also in markets for some human resources like housing and certain types of jobs. Basically, uh, the way it works is if you put a nice empty snail shell in the middle of a bunch of hermit crabs, one of them will come along and decide they want it. They want to take it. So they will discard their old shell and upgrade to the new empty shell. But the process doesn't stop there because in most cases, another hermit crab will come along and decide to swap their current shell 
before the shell abandoned by the first animal. So they leave their, their shell behind. Then another one will come along and decide to swap for that shell and so on and so on. And so the interesting thing about vacancy chains is that you only put one new resource into the environment, but multiple individuals in this market get a benefit. On, only one new shell goes in, but maybe three or four or even more crabs end up with a better shell than they started with. So, Jim in New Jersey says, Robert, Joe, and JJ, your discussion of human uses for vacancy chains, as seen by hermit crabs, reminded me of kidney transplants. Huh. The, the, yeah, I hadn't even thought of this. The, this is really interesting. So, Jim says, the best donor for a kidney transplant is often a blood relative, but sometimes there are no viable matching donors in the family. A kidney transplant vacancy chain occurs when a group of recipients and their donors are chained. The donor may not be a good match for their family member, but they may be a good match for another recipient. The chain starts with someone receiving a kidney donation. Their own willing family member donates a kidney to the next person in the chain, which triggers a new donor, etc., until the last willing donor has no current matches. So the original kidney donation may trigger many donations. The world record for the longest chain is 35 recipients. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, and I did click through. <laughs> Jim includes a link to a, a page that describes this. It's on the, the Guinness World Records page. And uh, it, it so I guess the when a chain like this forms, they might sometimes get a name. I'm not sure how that works, but this chain was called Chain 357. Suggests a magnum. I don't know if that's a coincidence or what. Um, anyway, uh, Jim goes on to say Lloyd Shapley and Alvin Roth received the 2012 Nobel Prize in Economics, which specifically included kidney chains as one of the practical applications of their work. So I think they were studying like um, how how resources get uh, allotted in sort of a market where people are trying to find the best match for what they want. And uh, vacancy chains would have some overlap and similarities to to that kind of uh, situation. Hmm, that's fascinating. So I guess we can put this on the list of human resources that do at least in part function like these uh, like these hermit crab shells. So you've got housing, you've got certain types of jobs, and to some extent also you have kidneys. Now, this next message about hermit crabs uh, concerns a type of snail that came up multiple times in our series on hermit crabs, the Nerites snails or the Nerite snails. Uh, we talked about them the most in the context of an essay about hermit crabs by Stephen Jay Gould, in which he talked about the hermits of uh, Bermuda, which he often observed trying to fit into snail shells that were way, way too small for them. And these uh, were the snails producing the shells in question. This would be the, the whole deal with uh, the wearing of fossil shells that was so fascinating. Right. So most of the hermit crabs were trying to fit into shells that were too small, but the ones that did have a bigger shell, uh, that shell was usually a fossil. Yeah. So this one comes to us from Graham. Graham says, hi, Rob, Joe, and JJ. I hope everyone is well. A big hello from Dorset in the UK. I've just listened to part three of your series on the hermit crabs, and your discussion on nerite snails piqued my interest. I have a pet nerite snail called Jeff. He is a nerite natalensis, otherwise known as a zebra nerite. Uh, you'll see why if you look at the attached picture of him. And yeah, 
look at that picture. I can definitely see the uh, why zebra would be the animal you'd want to invoke. Right. So the spiral shell has these stripes running along it. Uh, they're sort of, uh, at least in this picture, I don't know how much it's colored by the lighting, but it, they're sort of alternating black and pale orange. Hmm. He continues. Uh, he lives in my freshwater aquarium with my fish. He roams around for four or five days constantly and then sleeps for a day or so. In a day, he can do several laps of the tank, clearing up algae and other detritus as he goes. I include a link of a, to a short video I took of Jeff as he moved over the glass of my tank so you can see the underside of his foot when he moves. Watch out for his goofy teeth clearing algae from the glass as he goes. I hope you found this interesting. Graham. Now, Rob, uh, I want to put your mind at ease in case you're thinking about clicking on the uh, video, but you are worried that this might be another bleeding tooth situation. It is not mm -hmm. that. The, when uh, Jeff is talking... Not Jeff. Jeff is the snail's name. Sorry. When Graham <laughs> is talking about uh, uh, Jeff's teeth, I, I think Jeff, it, it, uh, sorry, Graham is talking about the snail's actual mouth, which you can see uh, because the snail's crawling along the opposite side of the glass of the tank and it's flexing its little mouth as it uh, as it looks for algae to scrape up. Uh, this is not the, uh, the disgusting looking bleeding teeth that are actually just part of the shell of the of a specific nerite snail. We talked about that in the episode too. Uh, one of the most horrifying visions of a of a mollusk I've ever seen. Yeah, this is more on the adorable end of the uh, snail observation spectrum here. I agree. This is really cute. So thank you for sharing, Graham. All right. Well, let's get into some of these Weird House Cinema messages. Uh, I understand we got a lot of Gorgo content. Uh, yes, we do. Um, so let's see. I don't know what's the best order to do these in. I, I think I got to start with this one because I got to partially uh, apologize to a listener here and, uh, and explain my logic in regards to bow ties. Um, so Chris writes in and says, Joe and Robert, on the recent Weird House episode about the British kaiju film Gorgo, one of you made a remark about the character Dorkin. Remember, Dorkin is the, the circus operator in Gorgo, who uh, essentially London is attacked by Gorgo's mother almost exclusively to prevent Dorkin from losing out on profits that he would otherwise acquire. Um so uh, uh, Chris says that we described Dorkin as a, quote, pencil mustached, bow tie wearing money freak. Uh, I did say that. Uh, Chris says, as a longtime wearer of bow ties, self-tied, not clip on. I found that a potentially offensive characterization. I am guessing other listeners might feel similarly, especially since the bowtie's recent revival as stylish, tasteful, and practical apparel, perhaps due to my over 50 years of effort. Uh, you can make amends by doing an episode on creation of the humanoids, Chris. Well, uh, thank you for the message, Chris. Uh, I do apologize. I did not mean to attack anything about your, uh, uh, your, your fashion choices. I do have to partially defend my logic here. So I would never insult the bow tie in principle. I totally agree. It can look great. Uh, it's part of a fantastic signature look for lots of people, both modern and historical. For some reason, uh, I was trying to think of like people who, who uh, I love the bow tie look of. And the people who came to mind are Groucho Marx and Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> you got to admit, they both did rock a bow tie. Uh, but I, I think you'll also have to admit, uh, Chris, that while there is absolutely nothing wrong with the bow tie on its own, in certain cases, 
it is part of a different kind of signature look. And in those cases, that signature look has negative connotations. And I, I think there are a lot of fashion accessories like this. Uh, one, another one that came to my mind is like aviator sunglasses. So they look cool. There's absolutely nothing wrong with them in principle as part of many, uh, people and characters looks they look really great but there is also a signature kind of cocky jerk look that would feature aviator sunglasses i think the bow tie is the same uh you know on some people it looks great but it's also a core part of dorkin the character wouldn't be dorkin without the bow tie and yet it remains a, a wonderful part of Groucho or Fred Astaire or, you know, whoever else. So I have full faith that that you are one of the people who uh, knows what you're doing with the bow tie. You wear it well, looks great on you. And congratulations for that. All right. And we'll uh, I guess, you know, we'll have to, to cover creation of the humanoids at some point. Um, we either keep hearing um, requests for it or this one listener keeps requesting it. <laughs> Maybe it's the latter. I think that one came up when a listener was describing a movie to us that uh, they couldn't remember the name of, and we were trying to figure out what it was, and that was one of the candidates. Does this sound familiar? This does sound familiar, yeah. It's also come up, of course, because it's uh, it's part of the filmography of Deadly Man Love. Oh, that, of course. There you go. <laughs> of uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space fame. Yes, your your what your um, was it your stupid li- was it stupid lives your stupid it? minds your stupid, stupid minds stupid stupid, <laughs> stupid. yes <laughs> great performance he's sadly not the lead of creation of the humanoids but at any rate still still worth a, a peek at some point all right uh, this next one comes to us from column uh, column writes in and says hi guys just watch Gorgo last night and watch with interest the first part of the film which you said was set in Ireland. I wanted to see if I could recognize any of the locations used. Turns out the location was not any rugged and remote island off the West Coast, but actually right here in Dublin, in the suburbs. It's a place called Dalky. Uh, I have included some Google Map links and some photos with the email. There are a couple of small islands just a few hundred meters off the coast, and the little harbor they used is right there also. Dalkey is a very affluent suburb on the south side of Dublin Bay. It's home to Bono and Edge of U2, Van Morrison, Anya, and a host of other celebrities and notable figures. Uh, I think I, I, I remember uh, hearing about, I think uh, like Matt Damon was over there during the pandemic or something and was talking about living there. And I remember it getting poked fun of uh in uh, in various like late night comedy bits because it was i guess it was like you know big celebrity being down to earth just talking about how nice the super affluent suburb uh, that he was living in was uh but i but i remember him talking about like like his neighbor was anya and so forth anyway he goes on to include uh yeah some some links and some photos um and i know for for, for our part i think we just had to look at these and imagine a gorgo in the shot and then we might be able to say, oh, yeah, this is definitely it. This this looks exactly like the Gorko uh, area. No doubt at all for me, Rob, especially if you scroll down to the pictures of uh, Collymore Harbor that Colm included here. Mm, yeah. You see these like, oh, yeah, this is where <laughs> this is where they came in on the dinghy. This is where they uh, they walked up uh, to go to the, the Harbor Master's shack and, and meet with the the scheming archaeologist who's trying to keep all the Viking gold for himself. This is where Gorgo attacks first uh, before he's even called Gorgo when he's just Ogre, the sea spirit, a giant rat attacking the harbor. This is where they, they throw fire at him and drive him back into the water. 
uh, it's it's all there, and I can see it. And also, the, yeah, the little island, uh, Dalkey Island, is is beautiful. I'd like to walk around on it. And I think I must recognize that from the movie too. That might be sort of in the background of maybe some of the, um, I don't know what the effect would be called, but you know where they've got uh, Gorgo in the foreground and and this location shot in the background. Yeah, oh, they need to build a, like a bronze statue of Gorgo. Right. Yes, that would fit right in. Yeah, celebrate. Well, thank you, Colm. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for sending in these shots. Always, it's always fun to hear uh, about anyone's uh, uh, you know personal connection to various locations featured in these films. I agree. Actually, yes. Message to listeners: if you have physical, direct physical access to a location where a movie we talked about was shot, and you want to send us photos of it and stuff, please do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's always great. I. Uh, you know, we've talked about a few films that have been shot in uh, in places that either around the Atlanta area or places we've traveled to. And, yeah, I always appreciate that connection, you know, where it's like, yeah, this is this is where uh, this is this is uh, this is where John Saxon came out of the subway. That's actually yeah. the Marta system uh, before he turned into a cannibal, that sort of thing. Yeah. Marta's in the, the deleted scenes in Escape from New York, too. That's right. Yeah. Sometimes I like to go to the museum here in Atlanta, which, of course, uh, is the, the very place that uh, Dr. Hannibal Lecter uh, was sequestered in the film um, Manhunter. Manhunter, yes, the adaptation of uh, Red Dragon. Uh, so, yeah, there are all sorts of fun curios like that. I uh, love it. But that was Brian Cox as Hannibal Lecter, of course. That Yeah, that was uh, OG Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. yeah. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... 
Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. All right, this next message is from Roberta. Roberta says, I've been thinking about writing in since you covered the magic sword on Weird House. Now, Rob, we we haven't done an episode on the magic sword, but I know the magic sword came up in another episode. Was it when we were talking about Attack of the Puppet People? Possibly, because, yeah, this is a Bird Eye Gordon film that that I've seen before. It was featured on MST3K. It has Basil Rathbone in it and Estelle mm-hmm. Winwood, Gary Lockwood. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And I, I remember us sort of like putting a pin in it that we might come back to this one in the future. I remember the same. Yeah, it's on my mental list for the show. So that must be what Roberta is referring to here. So Roberta says, recently you mentioned that you'd love to hear from people who saw the movies during their original releases. I saw The Magic Sword during its original release at a drive-in. I was three or four years old, and it was supposed to be a kid's movie. This, of course, was my very first exposure to movie acid pools and movie quicksand. I sat in the far back part of the station wagon in my pajamas, absolutely terrified. I went through my childhood with a real fear of being dissolved in acid or being smothered in quicksand, not to mention the fear of being ensorcelled by real witches. <laughs> I can really sympathize with you there, uh, Roberta. I, I also had, uh, when I was younger, for some reason, I really don't remember what triggered this, but I remember when I was young, I had an intense fear of like quicksand or of just being buried in sand. It was like an image that captivated my mind. Uh, and I don't know exactly where it came from. It was horrifying. Yeah, I mean, it's a clear and present danger if you're just going off of various films that are airing on like a, on TBS on a, a Sunday afternoon, that sort of thing. Roberta continues, This was the first feature at the drive-in that night, after which my older sister and I were expected to fall asleep while Mom and Dad watched the second feature, which we weren't supposed to watch. But as, uh, as soon as the music came up, I was riveted to the screen. The second feature was Gypsy, the musical about the famous stripper Gypsy Rose Lee. This went a long way toward calming my fears. I became lost in the music. Unfortunately, we were new in town, and I went around singing my favorite song from the movie, If Mama Was Married. <laughs> in 1963, this was some serious scandal. Anyhow, I wouldn't say the magic sword scarred me for life, uh, but it definitely scarred me for my childhood. Many thanks for your well-researched podcast of all types. When my friends start complaining about their various ailments, I trot out random facts from your podcasts, like about how lobsters have one cutting claw and one grinding claw. It really helps to get people talking about something interesting. Thanks again, Roberta. Oh, well, thank you, Roberta. That, that's heartwarming to hear. Yeah, and this is why you should you should keep a lobster on you at all times as a conversation starter, you know? Uh, you know, if somebody starts talking about politics uh, at a dinner, they just bust out a lobster. Instantly just cleanses the palate, instantly changes the subject. Let's talk about the bleeding tooth narrate. <laughs> 
All right. Well, I think there's only one listener mail we can go to from that since we're on the subject of uh, content in a film scarring one for life and so forth. This one comes to us from Jeff. Jeff says, greetings, science humans. First of all, I wanted to thank you for attempting to express just how horrible Emile's death is in RoboCop. To this day, I do not care for body horror, and while RoboCop was one of my favorite movies as a kid, experiencing that scene once was quite enough for me. Ever since, I have averted my eyes uh, from that part of the film, which, as you noted, just keeps going on. Somehow, it makes me feel better that even you guys were struck by its awfulness. Truly revolting. Correct on all counts. Yep. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. It was hard to watch this when I rewatched it in uh, December. Uh, anyway, um, Jeff continues. I'm a bit older than you, so to me, the weirdest thing about RoboCop's appearance on Weird House was that this is an obvious classic and one of the best movies of the 80s, as if you dug up a little-known nugget called Casablanca for us. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I have it has crossed my mind before. It's like, what if we did Casablanca? What if we just did Casablanca <laughs> on Weird House? It's not weird, but like as a one-off, like it could be fun. It's got, it's got weird actors in it. Uh, yeah, Peter Lorre, all that. Uh, yeah, I, I've mentioned a few times before in summarizing the show that on Weird House we will cover cover movies that are good or bad, well known or obscure. Uh, the only real criterion is that they're weird. I guess with the 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 secondary unspoken criterion that like they're weird and they're something we actually want to talk about. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there there are plenty of weird movies that I, I would not be very interested in watching or would not be very interested in talking about for 90 minutes. Yeah. yeah. And so sometimes they're boring, you know, <laughs> Yeah, um, but, and sometimes they're boring in just the right way. So it's, yeah, it's really hard to nail down exactly what makes it a weird house selection other than like, can weirdness be isolated in this sample? Anyway, Jeff continues uh, and says, but I can imagine what expectations might be if your first exposure to it, RoboCop, was looking at the box on the video store shelf next to something like Eliminators. And I certainly see the value of directing listeners to a film that on the surface appears to be a standard boring 80s shoot 'em up. Uh, it is it is worth noting, yeah, that if you're just going off of the like the VHS box art uh, and so forth, um, you know, a lot of these films appear to be on equal footing. And especially in my experience, films that you didn't get to see or you weren't allowed to see at the time, you know, your mind would just put them on that level. You would assume that the Eliminators in RoboCop are like exactly the same, like effects wise. Like at a young age, I really didn't, you know, I didn't have quite that expectation for like, this is going to be a good movie and this is going to might be a bad one. This one has a huge budget. This one has a minuscule budget and so forth. Yeah, from a distance, all sci-fi action movies look the same. Uh, and uh, But, of course, when you get up close to them, you might realize that some are actually quite complex or interesting or there's something, you know, they've got a heart to them. There's something going on that there is not in most of them. In fact, I would say that Paul Verhoeven in particular specializes in making movies of this type. Movies like RoboCop, Total Recall, Starship Troopers, all movies that I think are actually quite smart and quite complex and interesting but from a distance or if you you know uh you know with a little bit of blur on could just be taken as another dumb sci-fi shoot 'em up yeah absolutely all right well uh, uh jeff has more to say and has some more uh, movies to mention here uh jeff says also thanks to the listener who beat me to the punch by drawing attention to the connection between peter weller films and rat kings I haven't seen of unknown origin in this century, but I do remember it being pleasantly weird and funny. If memory serves, it also features a lock and load scene, although I only remember the final result. 
It's not clear to me if there's an, an appropriately clicky and snappy montage. On another retro subject, I might have missed it, but I was surprised that you didn't mention the Fire Gang from Labyrinth during the episodes on Headless Creatures, or for that matter, the ones about beasts and humans flinging things such as heads. I had a friend who, if he saw you from a distance, would shout, and I'm not going to do the voice, um, <laughs> where are you going with a head like that? <laughs> uh, Labyrinth uh, uh, fans know exactly the creatures we're talking about here. And I would like to come back and, and perhaps discuss Labyrinth at some point because it is a film that's full of um, perplexing details. And uh, at times it, there, there are things that don't make a lot of sense and it invites interpretation. So I'm, I'm a huge Labyrinth fan. So uh, yeah, we may have to come back to that one. Uh, anyway, Jeff continues. Finally, I'm sure you don't need another recommendation to check out uh, Godzilla Minus One, but I am going to provide you with an unprovoked one anyway. It's a truly wonderful and emotional film. I'd even say the giant lizard is not the best part, but all that effective melodrama and social commentary plus a giant lizard must see cinema. Thanks again for putting so much effort into entertaining and informing us all. Well, thank you, Jeff. Uh, yeah, uh, Godzilla Minus One is uh, near the top of my list of new releases. I'm sure I will see it quite soon. Yeah. Or, hey, maybe Gorgo Minus One. <laughs> <laughs> all right, this last message comes from Jared. Jared says, greetings, Joe and Robert. I'm quite a bit behind on my listening, but I wanted to comment on something you mentioned in the Weird House Cinema episode about Creature with the Atom Brain. You commented on how the hero of the movie was a, quote, science cop. What was the deal with that? Yeah, it was like not clear whether that he was like a scientist or a cop. This might have been one of the ones where this is like a non-police uh, officer who just gets to hang out and ask questions at murder investigations. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it feels about right. We, we often encounter that sort of, of character. Like, what's your role in the investigation again? Yeah. Jared goes on, over the Halloween season just passed, I had decided to see if I could find any movies from any of my subscription streaming services that were in the vein of what you feature on your Friday shows. I found The Magnetic Monster from 1953. In that movie, the two heroes are federal agents working for OSI, the Office of Scientific Investigation. Science cops. <laughs> I, guess the, <laughs> I guess the people behind the magnetic monster were maybe just a little more decisive about the details or something. I also noticed that the main character and his wife were also rather affectionate slash flirtatious with each other. Uh, oh, this was a, a major feature of uh, Creature with the Atom Brain that, that stood out to us. Like the, the main dude and his wife were all over each other. Jared says, it doesn't sound like they were quite as lovey-dovey as the couple in Creature with the Atom Brain, but maybe this was the style for some movie makers of the time, like how TV families were portrayed as much more wholesome and polished than real families. Anyway, as always, I'm loving the show. I'm continuing to work my way up to current day. Cheers, Jared. Well, thank you, Jared. Uh, coming back on Creature with the Atom Brain, I don't remember exactly what we said, but I did want to make it clear I don't have any objection to a monster movie incidentally depicting a, a married couple who are all over each other. It just struck me, I think struck both of us as unexpected for a movie of this type from this time period, uh, mm -hmm. especially where like the relationship is not the central focus of the story. Like if it was a love story, that'd be one thing, but it's just like, oh yes, this guy has to investigate the murders caused by atomic supermen. Also, his wife is just constantly trying to get him back into bed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a fun film. 
And this one that they recommend, The Magnetic Monster, yeah, this one uh, is is also a, a film that was written and I think also partially directed by Kurt Siadmak, um, who we talked about uh, in relation to that film, but also he was involved in 1946's The Beast with Five Fingers. Oh, okay, that's right. Yeah, yeah coming back to Peter Lorre. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we'll have to put that one on the list as well. All right, well, keep the recommendations coming. Uh, like I say, I do try to add these to a list, but sometimes I say I'll add them to the list and then I forget to. So if there's something that you're excited for, don't hesitate to um, to pester us about it. And, uh, you know, sometimes that's all it takes because a lot of times we have these films, we have kind of have, a, have an amorphous list of movies we want to get to. And sometimes it doesn't take much to just sort of push one to the forefront and help us make our decision for the week. That's right. All right, we'll remind everyone out there that, hey, Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we do listener mail around here. On Wednesdays, we have a short-form episode. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird movie on Weird House Cinema. If you haven't rated and reviewed the podcast recently, go do that. Help us out. We really appreciate it. And likewise, if you listen on an Apple device or an Apple podcast, go in, check. Make sure you're still subscribed. Make sure you're still receiving downloads. That also helps us out. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.